If you got your Bibles open, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, you can follow along. Just in case I didn't introduce myself, my name's Chris, one of the pastors here. Excited to jump in. I want to start with this question. Have you ever had an, a, a moment in your life where things didn't go as you quite expected? Maybe you went on a date and it got weird really fast. Maybe some of y'all are laughing like, that was last night, actually. Um, <laughs> maybe you went on a road trip when you thought your kids were going to get in the minivan and you were going to go see the Grand Canyon and it was going to be picturesque and then they just threw up for eight consecutive hours in the van. Have you ever had a moment where things didn't go as you expected them to go? I had one of those moments this Friday night. It was family night, Friday night at family night. So we do this amazing thing that nobody else does. We order pizza and watch movie with small children. And, um, and so my four-year-old son named Paxton comes up to me and he says, dad, let's make milkshakes. Now I don't spell big words, but I am a beast when you get me around a Ninja 3000. Okay. I will make a milkshake to the glory of the Lord. And so I'm like, son, let's do this. And uh, we go to the kitchen. I got my two-year-old daughter, Lucy, kind of on the counters and uh, my four-year-old son next to me. And we're throwing all the ingredients in. We got the ice cream and we blend up M&Ms. We do the chocolate sauce and we're rather big boned people. So we put half and half milk in this thing. We just go all the way. Okay. And, um, and so we're doing the whole thing and we're blending. We finally get to this moment where I'm like, this is going to be the moment. We can finally sit down, enjoy the fruits of our labor and drink this thing. Uh, and so we sit down at the table and uh, it doesn't go as planned. My son yells, dad, you didn't put the peanut butter in. You forgot the peanut butter this time. Dad, where's the peanut butter? And I'm like, son, chill out. We can get the peanut butter, okay? But then next thing I know, I look at my daughter who's two and I had given her a straw to slowly consume this milkshake. She had made up her mind that that was not a good strategy. And so she throws the straw, decides that she wants all of the milkshake in her mouth right now, okay? You can see where this is going. She pours this cup at a very aggressive angle right over her face, Okay, like, hey, it's gonna come at, it's coming at you hot, hon. You gotta be ready. <laughs> she was not ready, okay? She was definitely not ready. And so it hits her face and her shirt. And when our kids are at the home, we don't really wear pants. And so she's just all down her legs, you know? It's just confession. Don't turn me in. It is what it is. Stop judging. Okay, so now she's a hot mess and she's angry. Not only has her treat been spilled, but she's got milkshake all over her. And my, my wife is in the other room, in the living room, and she's nursing our newborn baby, okay? And all I hear from the living room is, Lucy, no! Because Lucy has taken off from the kitchen, is now climbing over the baby onto mom's back, and milkshake is dripping on everyone. It was in that moment when I saw my wife's face, a little bit frustrated, um, that this moment did not turn out as I anticipated it turning out. Now, I tell you that story to set up this story in our text because as I was reading this story this week, it doesn't go as I expected it to go. It is so filled with this beautiful, miraculous story of God healing this man. For 38 years, this man is laying on his bed, hoping for a healing, hoping that his circumstances would change, hoping that he would be made physically whole. He has tried every remedy on this side of eternity and it has all left him still hopeless, broken, sick, and hurting. And then Jesus steps in. How beautiful is it? This guy's at his very worst, hopeless, 38 years sitting there. Jesus sees this man. Jesus speaks to this man. Jesus moves towards this man. Jesus heals this man. 
In just a moment, Jesus does for this man what he has been unable to do for himself in all of his life. It is beautiful. It is powerful. It is redemptive. And how can you not fall in love with this Jesus? But then I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, this is a beautiful story. How's this going to turn out? I'm thinking to myself, when does the mayor of Jerusalem show up and, like, give him, King Jesus, like, a key to the city? When does the band come up and we start singing, great is our God? And when does the, the university president show up and say, we got to name a building after Jesus? He's amazing. Isn't he incredible? I mean, how can you not read this story and fall in love with the generous Jesus who heals this man, the compassionate Jesus that moves towards this man? How can you not see Jesus and think, man, that's the way Jesus moved towards me when I was at my very worst, when I didn't have anywhere else to turn, when I couldn't do something for myself. Jesus did that in me. How can you not fall in love with Jesus? But we find out in John chapter 5 that not everybody is a fan and a friend of King Jesus. Um, There's a group of religious leaders that don't so much care that Jesus did heal somebody. They care very much about when he healed somebody. He does it on the Sabbath. And these religious leaders make all these kind of rules about what you can and you can't do on the Sabbath. So they're going to get all offended and frustrated with Jesus. And he's going to have to have a sit down conversation with them. But the, the events in this text today, he heals a man. He claims to be God. And that sets into motion what will eventually lead to his crucifixion and the cross. And so today I want us to see this story because I want us to see really the two competing forces in this story. There's just a a straight up picture of man-made religion. It is exhausting and it is burdensome and it is not a blessing at all. And then there's this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ who comes with gospel good news for weary, broken sinners. And it's a beautiful picture of our Savior and the good news that we have in him. And so I want to see how these two collide in this story. This is more than a story 2,000 years ago that's filled with a weird religious leader and Jesus. This, these, really, these dynamics still are playing themselves out between the gospel and man-centered religion in our day. And we feel this tug of war and this pull of both. And so I want to expose religion for what it is. And I want to exalt Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, this matters because this week as I'm studying this passage, I became acutely aware You might know all of the right Bible answers and you might come from the right family and you might look the right way and all that stuff can be true of you and yet you can have no affection for Jesus Christ. I mean, these religious leaders, the scariest thing about them is they knew a lot of stuff and yet they were blind to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And I just want to warn our church of playing weird religious games and let's exalt Christ and not have any of that, okay? So let's jump in. I got two points this morning. First point is this, Jesus, our greater rest. Jesus, our greatest rest, our greater rest. So here's where we're at. We're into the city of Jerusalem, home of the religious leaders. Jesus has already performed two miracles. He had turned the water into the wine, and then he had also healed the sick boy. This is his third miracle in the gospel of John. In total, Jesus will perform seven miracles. And every time a miracle happens, there's more significance to these miracles than just that God has power and he can do what he wants. They represent something. Like Gavin talked about, Jesus and the new wine, the greater wine, the newer covenant. They they, they have significant meaning. And the, the meaning in this particular miracle that Jesus performs is that he does it on the Sabbath day. He does it on the Sabbath day. Now, let me just... Let me just lay out what is the Sabbath today. If you guys remember that God had given his people 10 commandments in the book of Exodus, the fourth commandment was to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What he basically God said was you can work six days, labor hard, but on that seventh day, create space to worship God, enjoy God. It should be a day of joy and celebration where you remember all of the good gifts God has given you and to fellowship with those who love God. It was a beautiful blessing 
by God. But here's what the religious leaders did. They took what was supposed to be a blessing and a gift from God and they made it a burdensome day. So it's a little bit ambiguous, isn't it? What is rest and what is work? Like for some of you guys, rest is a coffee shop with like a Bible, a a hot drink and nobody touching you or talking to you. You're introverted. You don't want anybody around you and that's restful for you. To me, that sounds like hell on earth because I'm ADD extroverted. So a good restful day for me includes exercise and 7,000 people. Okay. So, so what is rest, right? Like that's the dynamic. And so what these guys do is they legislate what is allowed and what is not allowed on the day of rest. They literally make 39 different rules, 39 different things that you can or you cannot do on the Sabbath. And I'm telling you, these rules are going to get super weird. And so we're going to see how this works. Now, Jesus in this story, he jumps in and he doesn't just see the multitude of people who are physically ill sitting around this pool. What he looks around and sees is literally all of these people who are being oppressed and enslaved by man-made religion, extra biblical requirements, oppression of people, standards that God never intended, burdensome, heavy religion affecting real people's lives. And Jesus isn't going to stand for it. So he's going to step up to the religious leaders and talk about the great arrest that he comes to offer us. So let me show you this. Verse seven, we're going to pick up the story. This is the dialogue between Jesus and the man who is about to get healed. He asks him this question, do you want to get well? It's a beautiful question. And then he says this. This is the way the man responds. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while, I go, while I'm going, another steps down before me. All right, so notice, this man says, Jesus says, you want to get well? The answer is, yes, Jesus, I want to get well. He doesn't say yes. He kind of just explains the hopelessness of the situation. See, this man was next to this pool for 38 years because it was common belief that when this pool of water was stirred with bubbles or kind of moved in an unordinary way, if you were the first one to jump into the pool, you would receive a physical healing. Okay, this is not a medical hot spring that, that, that actually had some medicinal purposes. Not at all. This is literally a dirty pool that people would jump in when it moved a certain way. And so G, he, this guy is saying, I, I, every time I try to jump in, somebody else beats me there. I can't figure it out. I'm not getting healed. And here's what's amazing about this. This is pure superstition at its finest, okay? How many of you guys know, like, when you're in pain or you're sick, like, you feel hopeless, You'll literally find something to put your hope in. I had back pain one night. I was looking on the internet for some kind of magnet. I didn't know I was rubbing icy hot on it. I was doing whatever it takes, you know? Like, hey, Lord, get me up out of this spot, you know? Now, this, this kind of superstitious stuff is kind of like today's version of essential oils, okay? Now, <laughs> I got y'all now. Y'all are with me. Okay. Okay. Now, listen. I, so... <laughs> My wife, my wife is into essential oils. And I know this because when I walk into the room, I can smell them. And I try to give my wife a goodnight kiss. And I said, what is that? She said, oh, I just have a cold. I just want to put a couple oils on. I'm like, well, it sounds like you got in a, it smells like you got into a fight with a tiki torch and you lost. I didn't know. It's just like an organic gasoline. I don't know what happened. It's very strong odor in this room. Okay. Listen, don't take it so seriously. Like, if y'all are into oils, I'm, I'm literally funding your business right now. But can we just acknowledge we might be taking it too far? Like, we might be, like, y'all are claiming that it's doing some things. I don't know if it really does. Like, there's real, 
pills with doctors and stuff. Anyway, so <laughs> but I'm cool that we're doing the tree bark sap. Anyways, okay. Y'all, now if y'all are upset, send it to Gavin. That was his idea. I would have never put that in the email. I would never, I would never, ever done that to y'all. Y'all are so offended right now. Anyways, okay, so here's the reality. Let's jump back into the story. This guy's in a hopeless situation. A dirty pool is not going to heal you, right? Like this is just a bad idea. Additionally, if the game is won by you jumping into the water first, for 38 consecutive years, this man has lost that game, okay? That is not a good place to be. So um, Jesus is going to move towards him. He's not going to judge him. He's not going to get impatient with him. Look what he does. Verse 8 and 9, he says this. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. You know what the gift of God does in your life? It fills you with joy. It fills you with gratitude. It fills you with freedom. It fills you with a new life. And that's exactly what this man would have been experiencing. Who is this man who would give me such a beautiful, great gift? Isn't that how we feel when we come to know Christ? So grateful. So thankful for the profound thing that he did in our life. The healing that happened on the inside. That's what this man would have been experiencing. Look at my legs. They came back to life. Look at what's happening. I can finally stand up with dignity. I finally don't have to beg for my provision. He would have felt incredible. It was a powerful moment. But remember, Jesus isn't just trying to heal this guy. He says to this man, take up your bed. He could have just said, stand up and walk, right? Be healed and go home. So why does he say, take up your bed? Well, that's important because remember, the religious leaders had made 39 different rules about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. And one of the things you could not do on the Sabbath was carry personal property. So that was work. And so now you can see the showdown starting to build, right? Here's this man who's overjoyed that Jesus stepped in and healed him. And at the same time, he's got a bed on his back. And you got some religious leaders who are literally wandering around Jerusalem trying to police people's behavior on the Sabbath. So you can see how this is going to get weird. Let's look at verse 10. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Well, that's just so encouraging. Thank you so much for that. I mean, can you understand? Can you picture yourself in this setting? Here's this man. He's been healed. He's excited about what's happening to his life. Religious leaders see him carrying his bed. Hey, sir. Yep. Come on over here real quick. We gotta, we're going to have to have a little conversation. Yeah, you got to understand what happened. I'm, I've literally been healed today for 38 years. I've been on this bed, and I've been begging for my life. And then this guy came. Sir, yeah, I'm not. Hold that tone. Not real interested on the whole healing. More want to know what you're doing with your bed. <laughs> Come again? Well, see, sir, I I wrote these rules. Me and my buddies, we wrote these rules about what you can and you cannot do on the Sabbath. And so that six days a week, six days a week, you can carry your bed wherever you want. But on the seventh day, on this day, no carrying of the bed, sir. No carrying of the bed. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad we cleaned this up because I just want to tell you that like I got healed. Sir, do you have a license and registration for that bed that you're carrying? Did you fill out a TPS report? Did a teacher give you a hallway pass? I don't know. What happened, but I'm telling you right now, there's rules that I made, and you're not obeying the rules that I obeyed or that I made, and so we're gonna have a little conflict here. You see what I'm saying? Do you see how weird this is? This is religion. This is cold hearted, unloving, critical religion, up close and personal. There's nothing human about this. This is nothing that, that, that expresses love in this moment. 
What would be loving would be to celebrate what God has done in this man's life, not to criticize him because he carrying some bed around. I just wanted to walk into this story this week as I was reading it and just like, just say, legalistic Larry, would you just chill out, drink a cup of water, take a nap, it's going to be okay, you know? But listen, hyper-religious people don't just exist in the Bible, don't they isn't it, don't they live around us? Like, have you ever been around really religious people? That it, it actually can happen where we make up extra biblical rules and then we try to tell people you gotta live by our standards of living that aren't even in the Bible. It's like, hey, don't you know? Recycling matters. You don't recycle? That's a serious, serious problem. Um, don't you understand? Like hymns are better than this contemporary Christian music. They're more spiritual. Don't you know that music needs to be turned up loud in the sanctuary so we can really jump around like David jumped around? No, 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 no. Don't you know the music should be low? We got to hear the people of God sing, don't we? Hey, listen, you didn't vote the way that I voted. Listen, don't you know tattoos are bad and dark beer is evil? Don't you know that grown men shouldn't wear skinny jeans? Listen, somebody said, amen. Hey, listen, y'all keep talking. But my wife likes it, so it is what it is. <laughs> thick thigh, thick thigh brothers stick together. Big boned brothers stick together on this, okay? <laughs> you make fun of me with my skinny jeans until you get confronted outside. Anyway, so I'm joking. Everybody relax. Okay, so what's interesting about this is we don't know all those rules because they're not in the Bible. And What's amazing is I just want to pause because it's easy to make fun of these guys and to mock them and say, this is just silly. But the reality is, is this spirit that can happen to these men is the same thing that can happen to our hearts, right? Like we are not just immune to this because we think it's a silly game. Like there's real churches and real people that are actually playing these weird religious games with each other. And I'm telling you, it is stealing people's joy. It's making them critical. It makes them feel burdensome and oppressed. And they're always living in fear because am I doing the Sabbath right? Am I living the right way? Am I doing the right thing? Man, I'm telling you, there's no gospel freedom, no gospel joy in that place. And so I want to say, how did these men get to that place where they're walking around trying to police other people's behavior? Here's one of the things I think happened. I think these are dudes that actually, are lo- they love God. I think they're actually trying to discipline their life. I think they're actually trying to be generous. I think they're actually crazy disciplined in a lot of areas. They know the Bible and they're doing some great things. And yet what I believe happened is this shift where they move from, I'm so thankful and so focused on God to, it's about me and my ability to keep the rules. It's about me and my ability to behave better than the people around me. It's about me and the way that I know some more verses than the people around me. It's about my behavior, my meriting, my earning, my do-betterisms. It's about my religious effort. It's not about Jesus Christ. And we have to be careful. One of the ways that you can say, am I becoming a religious person or am I resting in the gospel is ask yourself, are you consistently disappointed with the people around you? (sighs) Because these guys are disappointed with this man who's walking around with his bed on his back. And if you're constantly living in this state where you're like, hey, you should be reading your Bible more. Hey, you should have the preferred ESV version. Hey, you should be um, parenting your kids like I should be. You, you should be educating your kids like I should do the same way. You should vote the same way I do. You should live the way I do. You should model your life after the way I live my life. Like if it becomes about, let me tell everybody else how to live, you might have needed a little recorrection here because Christianity is not come 
get awesome, and then to tell the world how to be more like you, it's come broken to the very foot of the cross, find a savior, and tell the world about Jesus Christ. You see the shift? It's not man-centered, me, 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 me. The focus can't be. The focus has to be on the true hero of this story, which is Jesus. And I just want to say, church, I love this church. One of the most amazing things that the gospel of Jesus Christ will do in your life and has done in my life is I don't have to tell you to love people. When I tell you that you are loved by Jesus Christ, you are loved by him, even when you're unlovable, this amazing thing happens in your heart where you start to demonstrate that same unconditional love to other people. That's the difference between religion. Religion will shout at you and tell you to do something. The gospel will tell you what Jesus Christ has done for you, and you naturally start to model that in the lives of other people. Do you see that? It doesn't become about a religious obedience. It becomes about a heart affection. It changes the whole game. And church, I'm so, so, so proud. Can I just, on a real note, as your pastor, I'm in a city group and I see this happen all the time. There's moments in my city group where people are still in process. And the easy religious thing to do would be getting patient with them, to get frustrated with them, to get angry at them, to say, listen, you're not cleaning up your life quick enough. But man, that is not the spirit because Jesus has been patient with people in that group. Because Jesus has loved some people in that group, they are patient and loving with other people, even when they walk in weakness. Isn't that beautiful? It's awesome. Some of you guys got baptized in the last couple years. And can I keep it real? I'm so excited about what God's doing in your life. But you came to the family a little bit messy. That's okay. I'm still there. But I'm just saying, it's amazing to see the way the family of God is patient, gentle, loving, kind, joyfully welcoming you. That is a gospel-centered response. Church, here's what I'm saying. A gospel-centered church is not just a church that can explain what Jesus has done to people. But it can show that same gospel-centered love to other people. Amen? I want our church not to just have a strong handle on the word of God. I want us to be scandalously loving towards the weak around us. Amen? Awesome. Okay, let's move on. Here's what's going to happen in this story. You're going to start to see this showdown between uh, Jesus. And what's really going to move is there's going to be this awkward conversation, but now it's going to move into a manhunt because they're going to turn their attention from this man who had been healed onto the one who had commanded him to pick up his Uh, mat or his bed. And so we're going to see that play out. Look at verse 11 and 12. Here's what he says. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk. Do you notice this? Somehow Jesus is in trouble. Healed a man 38 years, gave him wholeness and dignity in life. Where's the man? Listen, just Bible reading 101. If Jesus is in trouble, somebody else is living in sin. Oh, he's preaching. Keep going. All right, 13 into 16. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. And as there was a crowd in the place, afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told... uh, told the the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were uh, persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So Jesus, if you remember in verse 2 and 3, there was a great multitude of people who were sick around this pool. When Jesus healed this man, there would have been a flutter of energy and activity, and Jesus pulls away because his primary activity in this day was not to heal a lot of sick people, but to set up this conversation about the Sabbath. So Jesus pulls away, then finds this man later and has the conversation, and he says, It is well with you. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen. Listen, this is not the primary thrust of this passage. It's not this moment and this conversation. But this week, as I was reading this text, this reminded me of my story. 
and I think so many of your story, that you are sitting alongside a place where you were hopeless and Jesus broke in and brought redemption, healing, and a wholeness to your soul. In my story, I'm an 18-year-old kid at Wayne State College. I'm broken, messy, insecurity, bitterness towards a dad that left, upset in a lot of ways. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ comes and heals me in ways that I can't explain. I'm made new in that moment. Received an incredible amount of grace through the personal work of Jesus Christ. Flood my heart with new life and new love. And then Jesus does this amazing thing. He looks at me and says, sin no more. We are preaching an incomplete gospel if we are saying that Jesus will redeem you and forgive you, but that he hasn't called you to repent from some sin in your life. Sin no more. Listen, it is true that you can come to Jesus Christ as you are. You don't got to clean up your life. You come to him with brokenness in your life. But it's also true that Jesus loves you far too much to let you stay as you are. He's going to change you and transform you. Now, why, are you, why would that happen? Why? Because guess what? Sin is always costing you life. It never delivers on the promises that it makes. It's going to leave you broken, fractured, and messy. And so Jesus wants to call you out of that so you can have a higher joy and live for his glory. Amen? And so what a beautiful invitation. Jesus is saying, listen, sir, you've got new life. You got a holistic body. You got a new life ahead of you. After 38 years of sitting next to that pool, you got the grace of God in your life. Don't waste it by pursuing sin. Don't spend your days that have been given to you on such a shallow pursuit. You move from physically weak to physically strong and healthy, but that doesn't mean that you've actually been regenerated, repented of sin, and become spiritually new. Don't live your life like you used to live your life. Live your life because you've received the grace of God in response to the goodness of God for the glory of God. Amen? It's amazing, beautiful picture. And so, church, I just want to say, I think this word is for us. Can I just look at you and say, one, take notice that it is well in your soul because of Jesus Christ. You're a forgiven creature. You've been made new. His spirit is inside of you. You got eternal life. But can I look at you, church, and say, don't just rest on that. But can I call you to fight sin in your life, to say, sin no more. We know the areas we are living in compromise. You don't need me to call it out. The Holy Spirit will convict you. Your apathetic prayer life, your anger towards your spouse, your frustration with your kids, your unforgiveness of your parents, your lack of generosity, your isolation and love of comfort and entertainment, so much more that you spend hours on that stuff and no time with King Jesus. Listen, there's stuff in our lives, and can I just say, can we make war on it? It's not going to give us the life that Jesus Christ promised. He said, I've come to give you life and life to the full, an abundant life in the personal work of Jesus Christ. He's not trying to take your life. He's trying to give you a fuller, more beautiful life. Can I call you into that? Would we sin? No more. All right, last thing I want to say is I think the primary tension in this text is the gospel and religion. Gospel talks about what Jesus Christ has done for us. Do you know that Jesus, while he's on the cross, he says that it's finished. In Hebrews, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. What does that mean? That means his atoning, saving work has been completed. You cannot add to it by your righteous living or your attempts at morality. Jesus Christ already accomplished it perfectly for you. Now, that's the good news of the gospel, that when we receive Christ, we get all of that. Now, the hard part about religion is it tries to convince us that Jesus is part of the equation, but it's also ultimately up to us. It's about our doing, our trying, our purity, our background, our story, 
are living. And the reality is, is I just want to ask you, some of you guys are in this place and, and you're, you're basing your relationship with God on your most recent spiritual performance. And that either has left you in a place of pride where you think you're more awesome than everyone or else it's left you in a place of despair where you think that you're hopeless. That's what religion does. You're going to ride this wave of your own personal performance because it's not rooted in the gospel. I just want to say, church, let's be a gospel-centered church. Let's have nothing to do with empty man's religion. It will steal our joy, make us weird people trying to police other people's lives. Let's keep our focus on Jesus Christ. Amen? All right. Number two, this is an amazing point. Deep, Jesus is God. If I can't preach this one, y'all, y'all need to fire me and tell me to sit down, okay? So Jesus is God. It's okay. Um, so Jesus was never confused about who he is. You know, there's a lot of debate now about if Jesus was just a, a historical figure, a teacher, a person who had a political agenda. Was he just a miraculous healer? Who is Jesus? Still people all around the world are debating who is the person and work of Jesus. If you talk about a lot of things, you can get agreement. You talk about Jesus, there's usually varying opinions of who he is. But Jesus was never confused about who he is. Jesus is very clear that he claimed to be God. And so we've got to wrestle with that today. Look at verse 17. Here's what he says. The religious leaders in him finally square up. They finally have this face-to-face interaction. Remember, Jesus has talked to the healed man. The healed man had talked to the Pharisees or the religious leaders. And now Jesus and, and this man is finally getting together. So let me show you this. It says, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. So, um, hey, Jesus, why'd you tell this guy to pick up his bed? Well, you got to understand, God is always working. So the Jews and God actually believe on point one. We believe that God is always at work. Even on the Sabbath day, God might have rested from his creating work in the book of Genesis, but he didn't rest for him his sustaining work in our lives. God is always calling the sun to rise and set. God is always hearing your prayers. God is always knitting together life in a mother's womb. God is always at work in people's lives and in their stories. And so God doesn't rest in the way that we would think about the Sabbath rest, okay? So he's saying God's at work and I'm here and I'm doing work as well. And I think if he would have just stopped there, he wouldn't have gotten so much trouble. But the mic drop offensive moment in this statement happens in the first two words. He says, my father. He's saying, I'm the one and only son of God. Don't put me in a little category. I'm not just some spiritual magic worker. I'm not some just teacher. I'm not just the flash in the pan guy that made the big, big crowd. I am the very son of God that has come to step into my creation, to redeem creation. I've come to seek and save the lost. I am the very son of God. Now, this would have been incredibly offensive to these religious leaders who did not see Jesus that way. So let's see how it lands on in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Okay, so this is the significance of this chapter. It starts to change in the book of John where Jesus, I just want you to know, he gets crucified. This is what I'm saying. Things don't go as I expect because in this story, I'm expecting an applause, a crowd, and you see that now they're plotting to kill Jesus, okay? The thing that, that gets these guys so rallied up is that he's saying, I am God, okay? And so you've got to deal with that. And so Jesus doesn't go to the cross because he fed some people or, uh, or he healed some people, He goes to the cross because he claimed to be God. And so Jesus, though, is not confused. And the question on the table that we all have to wrestle with is, who is Jesus? 
Is Jesus really the innocent one who came to die for the guilty? Is Jesus really the one who spoke creation into existence? Is Jesus really the one who came and made the law, but then came and fulfilled the demands of the law? Is Jesus really the one who was faithful to the unfaithful? Is Jesus really the one who even now is is sustaining all of the universe by his power and his work? Is Jesus really the one who died on the cross for our sins so we didn't have to experience the wrath of God, but instead got the grace of God? Is Jesus really the one who canceled his own funeral and rose from the grave? Is Jesus the one who's still alive, still victorious, still working in people's lives? Is that who Jesus is? As Christians, we would say, yes, amen? That's our Jesus. Amazing. But here's the question. I think we say yes. We have this big theology of Jesus, of who he is. And here's the thing that I've discovered, that we can have a really strong theology of this big Jesus, but a really small practice of Jesus in our own lives. What I mean by that is so many of us want to reduce Jesus into the guy who dies so we didn't have to go to hell, but we get to go to heaven. We're very comfortable with Savior Jesus. We feel very threatened by Lord and Leader Jesus. We say, Jesus, I will receive your grace and your forgiveness, but my friend, please keep your hands off my marriage and my money and my relationships and my career. Please don't call me to do anything that I'm uncomfortable with. Don't call me to sacrifice for your glory and others' good. I'm not okay with that. I would rather remain in control of my life because I'm more comfortable with me being God than you being God. It's a lie here all the time. Trust Jesus for salvation, but trust your own intuition to lead your own life, which, by the way, I've done in the past, and that got me in a hot mess. (laughs) Can I just say, church, Jesus is not trying to take your life. He's trying to invite you into a life of faith, a life of of, um, trust, a life that will be so much more beautiful and full than the story that you could write on your own without him. And so as Christians, the greatest gift of Christianity isn't that you don't have to go to hell. The greatest gift of Christianity is that you get the person, power, and presence of Jesus Christ in your life. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a beautiful truth. What what a beautiful reality to know that God is writing my story. He is sovereign and in control. Amazing. So I want to just invite us as Christians that we wouldn't just people to say, I believe, yes, Jesus, you are the very son of God, and then say no thanks to your lordship and your leadership. But would we be people that say, God, You are more than just a guy who died for me so I can go to heaven, but God, you are my king, and I trust you with every area of my life. Now, for the non-Christian in the room, we got to wrestle with the same question. Who is Jesus? At the end of the day, Jesus is either a miracle worker who claimed to be God, or he's something, or he's actually God himself. He's either a liar, or he's the Lord. He's one of the two. And if you're not yet a Christian, maybe you're in this room and you think this is a nice story and that's neat and you guys have some songs, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in. I want to ask you, could it be true that Jesus' claims about himself were actually true? And if it was true, what kind of implications would that have on your life? I believe that Jesus is real. I believe that Jesus is alive. And I believe that Jesus might be calling you today to have a relationship with him, not just to acknowledge that he was a real person 2,000 years ago, but to actually live in a right relationship with him as your savior, as your Lord, as your friend, as the one who loves you. It's amazing. What an invitation. So today I want to say, I want to end by this. Church, I don't want us to have any business pursuing empty religion. Can we just not play weird religious games where we look around and say, you need to live like me and we start to cast judgment and we make it about our morality and our name and our church and all this other stuff. Let's not do that. There's no life in that. The only life to be had is in the personal work of Jesus Christ where he said he lived perfectly even when I didn't. He's the perfect one. He's the hero of the story. 
man, we need to worship him, rally behind Jesus, not get enslaved with all of these do's and don'ts, with this comparison game, with this empty religion where we start to walk around and say, why are you carrying your bed? just gets weird. It doesn't end well, and it will cost you your joy. It's a dangerous, dangerous game to play. I'm so thankful that Jesus has set us free from this game. Galatians says, he set us free. It's for freedom that he set us free. It's amazing. It's amazing. We have freedom in Christ. The law has been fulfilled. Rest in that this week. Let's pray, and we'll go. Jesus, so thankful for your work. What a beautiful story that you heal the sick in so many ways. That's the gospel story for us. We were the ones desperate in need of your work. We couldn't heal ourselves, remedy our situations. So we look for life in lots of different places. And yet, God, you have been the great physician in our souls. You have not just worked in our lives, maybe physically, but you've legitimately healed us from the inside out. And we thank you for the way that you show us grace, mercy, compassion, the way that you give us everything that we don't deserve. And Jesus, I wanna pray that we wouldn't just believe in your name, that, this, that Jesus really is God, but that we would make you the Lord and leader of our lives. God, there's just areas of our lives. We don't trust you and we repent of that. We say, hands off, you're not good. So God, I pray today that we would believe that you are good, that you are trustworthy of our lives, of our future, of our relationships, of our kids. God, would we trust you in the hard areas of our life? Additionally, God, I think your spirit is working in here today and that you've called some of us to repent of sin and say, sin no more. So God, it is well in our souls because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. But God, would you call us out of the sin that we're settling for and into a greater joy? God, I just believe that. You've got more for us than for those in this room that are not yet Christians. I just pray that you would continue to call them to faith. Oh God believe that you are real. So even now, if you're not yet a Christian, you want to become a Christian, you say, I've been ignoring Jesus for a long time, but I want to make him my Lord, my leader, and my Savior. Would you pray with me right now? Jesus, I've rejected you and I've sinned against you, but Jesus, I believe you are God. You are who you said you are, the eternal, holy, perfect God. And Jesus, I want a relationship with you, my creator and my Savior. So I receive you as my Savior and Lord today. Come into my life and work in a mighty way. Be my healer. In Jesus' name I pray.